Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Today on First Edition, it's time. Fall books, September it books, knockout round. It's a tough one. Not going to lie, Rebecca and I try to do it. In the second half of the show, Professor Jenny Nuttall comes on to talk about her new book, Mother Tongue, The Surprising History of Women's Words. It's out now. Really good interview talking about language and especially pre-1800, so stick around for that. One quick note, I got something wrong with the knockout round. There's one book that's in there. It's How to Say Babylon. You'll hear us talk about it doesn't come out until October 3rd. I don't know how I got it wrong, but it did. So I don't know. We'll do honorable mention, something for October. So if you're doing the checking, yes, you are correct. It doesn't come out till October, but there we go. All right, let's get into it. Coming upon one of the most stacked months of book releases I can remember. <laughs> I don't know who I feel worse for, you for having to make this list of 10 or me for having to narrow it down. It's going to get real ugly at the end. Um, I'm so sorry for us. To the last three here are pretty tough. It's, it's, a, it's an embarrassment of riches. We haven't done this show this way for very long, but certainly since we're doing this show back in April. But even in our... I guess less systematized, you know, cataloging of the books coming out. This feels especially heavy. It's a great fall, but September is especially great, especially the next three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have my long list was thirty. I got oh, it gosh. down to fourteen. I and I want to get it to ten. And after much gnashing of teeth, I did it. I eliminated one, so we're down to thirteen. We're going to do thirteen. <laughs> okay. And uh, we'll try to get through them pretty quickly. I guess um, we talked a little bit about what's still cooking. I'm, I'm happy to say that Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which we both yes. spiritually picked, if not uh, with our hearts, if not our heads, maybe got our uh, we got a little backdoor coverage from the universe. It's selling well. Reviews are great. Mm-hmm. It's outselling Tom Lake right now, which is the one I'm we delighted. were looking at. No, no shade to Ann Patchett. Um, no. Ann Patchett is going to sell plenty of books, but, but I'm delighted yeah. to see Heaven and Earth Grocery Store do yes. so well. And Patchett gets plenty well-deserved recognition. It's just time for James McBride to get it to. Yeah. So we'll see. The first week um, hardcover fiction sales were about 18,000, which is like just 2,000 behind Daniel Steele's new novel, which is really good for James yeah, McBride. Yes. I'm sure I haven't seen, but it has to be his biggest um, release so far because his last book was the James Brown biography. And then before that was Deacon King Kong, mm-hmm. which sold pretty well. Um, and Good Lord Bird had to surge after the adaptation. So this is his real first crack at James McBride as a semi-household name, at, le- at least among people like you and me or people going to listen to this show. So richly deserved. It's a wonderful book. Go check that out. And I'm glad he got it out in August. Um, yes. Because Gosh. there's comers coming on here all the way around. So um, I got it down to 13. Again, 
this is going to come down to the last two or three, honestly, probably just the last two. But even knowing that, there was enough that I wanted to shout out that were worth talking about that I couldn't help but get it to 13. So I apologize out there. I couldn't kill all my darlings. I'm sorry to Mark Twain, murder my darlings, whatever else it might be. I feel like you should keep the other 17 and we can do like a September flashback knockout round in December when there are like three books. I mean, the books that I didn't put on here are some interesting ones, like the evil, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mona Watt has a book comes out. Walter Isaacson has an Elon Musk book coming out. I I just can't deal with that. Uh, Miriam Gupta has a book coming out. Um, But, you know, I felt pretty good about this list, even if they're not all for you and I, they're all for everyone out there. So I think we're going to go ahead and get into this. um, Okay, let's do it. At this point. Now, I think I was previewing, I don't remember in which place we were having the Stephen King discussion of what does one do with a new Stephen King release? Because, (laughs) well, tell me why, Rebecca. Tell me why we're not sure what to do with a Stephen King release. I think that was on our fall new yeah. new release draft for the Patreon for the Book Riot podcast. A new Stephen King release, like it's a a big deal in that he made a lot of money for it and there will be a billion copies and they will sell. Like Stephen King's has a dedicated audience that is going to go buy those books. But he's also so like definitively in his pocket that they're not really news a, a new Stephen King book is not really newsworthy and doesn't seem to compete with, yeah. you know, the other new release titles, at least in the format of, you know, what we're talking about here. Like Stephen King fans are going to go get the new Stephen King book. Is Stephen King getting new fans now? Like where do you question. even start? Yeah. Is uh, If you want to get into Stephen King, do you go pick up the new one or do you still go back to like The Shining or It? Um, you know, I think everyone in our generation discovered Stephen King somewhere between fourth and sixth grade when you like picked up your parents' copy of something and scared the crap out of yourself. <laughs> How does it work now? I don't know. Um, so is this your way of telling me Stephen King did not make the final 13? No, that's my first one up. And I did oh, for the okay. purposes of this month, I did the random.org and then I moved some stuff around because I didn't want... I didn't want Babe Ruth leading off and just knocking yeah. everyone else down. That wouldn't have been fun. And That's I did put Stephen to. King's new book, Holly, here first, coming out next week, September 5th. Um, it's a character that I guess he really liked and characters really liked from some earlier books. She's a detective. Some Stephen, things, Stephen King things go on. I almost feel like, and I'm not a Stephen King person. I don't typically like horror, but I like, you know, we've, we read together... Um, uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption for an episode of the mm-hmm. Book Riot podcast we did a long time ago. I've read Stand By Me. I read 112363. I like his non-horror stuff, and I don't always know what might be right. right for, I feel Weirdly, I think Stephen King's underrated, and I feel like I am underrating him because I think that's right. he is so steady, and there's a new book every year, and it's going to sell very well. It will not get nominated for anything. He'll get a lot of money for it to be optioned into something that a lot of people will like. And he's kind of like a favorite coat hanging in the closet that you're not like really, you're not wearing it for date night, but it's there all the time. When I think something, you know, I don't know really anything about this title other than what you just said about it. That it, right, that it picks up with a character from a previous book. And that seems to be going on now in sort of like late stage Stephen King career is this like Stephen King universe where there are, yeah, the the extended Stephen King universe. Um, 
where there are new books featuring characters from previous books. And I don't know if you need to have read the previous book. Like, did we need to meet Holly in the previous book in order to appreciate or like fully grok the new one? But that can be a barrier to entry for readers. I know it can be a barrier to entry for me unless someone is very directly like, no, this book Mm -hmm. is great. You don't need to have read anything that comes before it. Like, I I completely agree with you. I think he is underrated because he is so consistent um that it's just kind of like well what else are you going to say about Stephen King yeah. there's a new book it's big it might be scary a lot of people will buy it there like there you go um but I do feel a little bit like I mean Stephen King's doing fine he can Scrooge McDuck all day long but I feel a little sad for like y- y- you need a little he deserves a little recognition for yeah, that for it's like funny. You, to be so consistent when we first heard the 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 site really 10 11, 12 years ago now, um, it was a thing for the, what we call now writers of commercial women's fiction, the Jennifer Weiners, yes. the Jodi Picoza of the world, to, I think, fairly, or at least interesting, being interestingly upset that while they were selling a bunch of copies, they got no cred, they got no plaudits, they got no awards, they got no really sort of... Um, recognition from for artistic or you know critical appraisal and i you know say i don't know about that case i'm not that interested in those books myself but i'm also not the arbiter of all you know merit but the person who has the claim to that claim is stephen king <laughs> not jennifer Weiner. <laughs> Yeah, if anybody should be mad that they sell a floppity jillion books and don't get critical discussion, it's Stephen King owns that throne, I think. And maybe to like look at it from a a brass tax point of view, what is it that prevents him from being a finalist in a book like this? Because formally, it's going to be Stephen King. He's not a wonderful writer of sentence. He's a very good writer of plot Mm -hmm. and character um, and story. But in terms of on the sentence level, on the idea level, on the formal level, it's going to be bounded within a particular range. And I think that, again, once we get to some of the, the people that we think will survive rounds, um, not get rounds against each other, that stuff matters more when you're talking about being the it book. Because the it yes. book has a certain je ne sais quoi. It captures the imagination. It's doing something different. Frankly, newness is a thing or scarcity is a thing when it comes to being the it book or the it thing or whatever. And when it comes to Stephen King, go to your local bookstore and look at the Stephen King shelf. And it's hard to argue for King scarcity. Yeah, it's I think it's kind of like, you know, more people are watching CSI and SVU shows than are watching anything else. I think it's on better television. than that, though, don't you? I don't even <laughs> oh, think no, 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 I agree. Though. I agree. I, I yeah. don't mean to equate the quality of Stephen mm. King with the quality of CSI and SVU. But like these things that are the most popular, right. you know, Stephen King, super popular, going to sell a lot of books, tons of people are going to watch SVU and CSI, but those shows are not going to make it into any kind of critical conversation, both because like they are lower on the craft mm-hmm. scale, but also it's just the same thing consistently forever. It's very formulaic. You know what you get and there's nothing new to say about it. Yeah. Um, I think there probably are some new things to say about Stephen King, especially if somebody wanted to like do the deep dive on his decades long career right. and what is the arc of that writing looked like. But other than there's a new Stephen King book, like you, you, you know what you're going 
to get unless he really is going to take a hard left turn into something different which i would love to see him do but yeah for this the uh, for specifically the purpose of this conversation of what's going to be the it book Mm -hmm. there has to be something you can glom onto for a conversation or like the kinds of things that a person might mention at one of those cocktail parties people are always worried they're going to get have to go to and talk about books um there's no like hey have you heard about the new stephen king um that's just not very likely i mean is it even possible like what if we just swapped out say the book we were just talking about what if the the actual words that were in heaven and earth grocery store came out as heaven and earth grocery (laughs) store by stephen king like i don't even know maybe it would matter but like what could stephen king even do to break out of that bubble (laughs) because that would make someone be like oh this is different yeah or be like for you and i to pick up what would it take for you and i to pick up a stephen king new release that's a weird question Mm, to to be mm -hmm. asking um, but I think that's why I have Stephen King here first, kind of as, a, as it book emeritus or honorary. Okay. You know, you got <laughs> to mention it. you got to mention the king. You know, you just do. <laughs> um, all right. So coming up next, our first contender then is um, again. I don't put debut fiction on here, but I will look at a debut nonfiction because it can have a different okay. hook. And this one is How to Say Babylon by Safia Sinclair. Um, that is coming out from Simon & Schuster. Artie saw a profile today of her uh, mm-hmm. that, that that turned up. She grew up in a Rastafarian household. She's a poet by trade. And this is her memoir of growing up in this Rastafarian community, her experiences there, and ultimately her, I, I think in the one of the slug lines is cutting off the dreadlocks is, you know, both literally and figuratively what happens. And this is her recounting of her experience here. Um, the comps alone, echoes of educated and born a crime. I think that's, <sighs> if it weren't those kind of comps and a poet, it takes a lot mm-hmm. to get a memoir by a debut person in here. But I think, Rebecca, it's enough to be considered. Yes. What do you think of um, How to Say Babylon by Safia Singh? Oh, this is so on my radar. You know, she, like love a memoir by a poet. I also love a memoir about growing up in a like more obscure religious sect or, you know, religious kind of community. I don't know much about the Rastafarian, you know, like systems or beliefs. And she is getting all of this attention and I'm I'm seeing the profiles and the buzz. Yeah, I think this one could really shoot way up over the course of September. It's going to be, you know, a tough road to hoe because there are some big literary, you know, big hitters coming, but I think this one there's already some juice and it's not even September on the day that we're yep. recording it. So, yep. yeah, Sophia Sinclair going to knock out Stephen King. Um, I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm going to be listening to this on audio post haste. Um, up next, um, Sinclair is now sandwiched between two titans, but of different kinds. If King okay. has all the dollars and none of the cred, J.M. Cotier has what, a little thing we like to call the Nobel Prize. Ever heard of it, mm-hmm, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I'm and familiar. he has a new book coming out called The Pole. September 19th from Live Right. This is a story of a Polish person whose name I will not deign to try to pronounce. I looked at it. The last name is this, W-A-L-C-C-Y-Z-K-I-E-C-Z. Have fun with that. Um, go. I'm sure it is something completely different than I would guess. His first name is Witold. I guess maybe we'll do that. Who is a an aging concert pianist who falls into a... Uh, 
relationship with one of the wealthy patrons of the arts in his community Hmm. in Barcelona. And she has a husband, but she also likes fellas and likes him and likes being in control. And it's a, this is one of those like European arts um, affairs, sexually liberating, but also weirdly like sexually um, prim at the same time novels. Hmm. The kind of thing like, I'm getting sort of Phantom Thread vibes off of this for anyone that's seen Phantom Thread, which I didn't watch until very lately. Um, and it was awesome and unexpected. And there's this sort of com- there's this conflict between prim and proper, and also like really wanting to let loose um, and be, I guess, dominated in its own kind of way, if not explicitly in a Fifty Shades kind of gray. Kotze is a wonderful writer. These things are rich and they're complicated. And I'm afraid will last no longer <laughs> than this. Um, I, where, have you done any Kotze have done Waiting for Barbarians or Disgrace or Foe or any of these? Have you ever I have dipped your not. toes into the water? Kotze has been sort of perpetually on the someday maybe list yeah. for me. I think I came of age literarily a little bit behind his bigger yeah. moments and just yeah. I never went back. It feels like the kind of thing that like maybe some of my English professors would have assigned and I just didn't land in those classes. Mm-hmm. I think you are right about all of the things about the potential of this book and also that it's not going to last beyond this round. I'm sticking with, I'm going to stick with Sophia Sinclair because I think, you know, I'm sure Coetzee is great. You don't win the Nobel for no reason. Hmm. And those kinds of writers tend to be, they, they tend to require a little bit more work of readers. That's a barrier to entry on its own. Um He's all like once you've won the Nobel, it, it's I and think two it's harder bookers. to He's continue. He's the first author to win the Booker twice. <laughs> it's like harder to continue making news um, because oh. of just like regression to the mean. Like I am sure that a very average Coetzee book is better than it almost is. anybody's anything else. The Life of Time of Michael <laughs> K is amazing. Disgrace is amazing. <laughs> Waiting for the Barbarians is amazing. Yeah. it's a cry in shame um, <laughs> that I have to agree with you that it's hard to um, advance could say any further i he, the other thing it's this happens i think this happens in the american sign to delillo his radicalness and outsiderness now you can't even he, he's now an insider and so it's like mm-hmm. it feels more domesticated than the writing and the books actually are both for delillo and Cotier. yeah i think this is a byproduct of you know, like cultural conversations that really needed to happen, and also in my reading of it, some overcorrection. The Delillo yes. stuff really had yes. me thinking about that when we read White Noise together earlier this year. That there are like we have really shifted away from just literary recognition of older white guys examining things mm-hmm. about culture, or we've expanded beyond it, and I think that's great <laughs> for like all the reasons that. It is great. And there should still be room in the conversation for a literary white guy to do something great in a work of fiction and us to, you know, discuss yep. it and acknowledge it. But in this moment, we're just not paying that much attention to those things right now. Or the the discourse is not as interested in that. I think that Coetzee is going to be, you know, one of the folks who feels the impact of that certainly happened with DeLillo. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing, I don't think there's anything to be done about it. I'm not going to get on my horse and no, ride no, no, like no, no. be, you know, pay an attention to Coetzee instead of someone else. But I like a yes and approach in general. And I right. would like there to be, I would like there to be room for this. I as well. I'm sure we 
I got to sit on a waiting for the barbarians anniversary or something. That book, mm. that book's going to blow. You're going to love that book or you're going to really respond to that book. You're going to find it very interesting. I would say we'll have to find some, some way for me to make you read that. Cause I, here's the thing. I'm a big Cote fan. I have not read all 20 books. I'm sorry. I haven't. I probably so read, many books. I've read seven or eight. So I'm probably in the top 1% of Cote readers, to be honest with you. If I I'm read sure. seven or eight of the 20 and I'm looking forward to this and I will read this. Um, but I'm still more interested <laughs> in Sinclair. There's a new shiny. I don't know this experience, but I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, um, love triangles of arts people in, in Europe. I, I kind of been there weirdly. It's going back to like Henry I've also, James. You know, I've seen that movie several yeah. times, but like also speaking of the movies, the last couple times I've gone, I've seen previews for the Bob Marley biopic that's coming uh, out next year and a big biopic about like the most famous Rastafarian in the world. Um, Hmm. might also be a great hook for Sophia Sinclair and her paperback release next year. Yeah. Um, and the, the, I, we should also say the it book designation here is not what should be, what we would Right, pick. what will be. Well, yeah. maybe in the, in the James McBride Except example. for James McBride. Well, maybe, we're, maybe we're, we're right. Maybe we're trying to break a tie at the end. This is just our sense of it, right? This is just, yeah. it's got that special something that's going to have a little more heat. And the literary internet is not going to be fawning all over the Cote, even if it's great. But if the Sinclair is not. great, we're yeah. going to see a lot of buzz and a lot of um, um, a lot of talk about that book. And she's going to be on all the interviews. And Cote is not traipsing into talk to Jenna Bush Hager. Uh, right <laughs> he's not. Just not he's, he's for sure not going to do that. Which is life goals, but also not <laughs> it bookmaking kind of a correct. Yeah. Uh, the next up, this is a name we haven't heard from in a long time. And if every year is too often, then waiting since when did um, Billy Lynn's long halftime oh, walk yes. came out in 2012. This is one mm-hmm. of the first like book riot books where like a bunch of us mm-hmm. were reading this at the same time, which is wonderful. It got made into a very mediocre movie by Ang Lee. Um, but his new book is called Devil Makes Three. It's coming out September 26th from Flatiron. Um I didn't say this about the Cotier, 176 pages. My guy doesn't write books over 250 pages long. You'll love, we love that. to see it. Devil Makes Three is 544 pages. The less said about that, the better. This is set during a coup d'etat in Haiti in 1991, and an American expat um, gets involved who's a scuba diver. This sounds like fountain material right it's about the military Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. kind of coming at it from an oblique angle i think it sounds pretty interesting i'm not sure military people and rookie ca case officers i'm I'm trying to figure out the genre of this is this more of a like a tom clancy a woke not woke a socially aware I'm, i'm getting rid of woke everyone's that they've all ruined it a socially aware sort of tom clancy international geopolitics kind of a situation or is it more of a page train kind of things? Knowing Billy Flynn's long halftime walk, I can't imagine that he's gone full military political thriller. I cannot imagine I that. I cannot imagine that. Yeah, we're um, not getting like Ben Fountain does Jack Ryan. I can't, I can't believe it. Not, not that he spent 10 years working on this. He got the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Penn Hemming Award 
and a Los Angeles Book Prize for Fiction I for mean, Billy Flynn's Long Halftime Walk. If you haven't read that book, that that book's wonderful. Billy Lynn's Long. It's a great Long. book. Yeah, Billy Lynn's Long. Billy Flynn is the lawyer that's a, that's in the Chicago name. musical. I know, I know. Good <laughs> but I make the same mistake. Namespace too. pollution. <laughs> um, and when Billy Lynn came out in 2012, there was this huge crop of like maybe half a dozen other novels about the Iraq War published yes, within a right. year of each other. That was like Kevin that was just Powers? the thing. Was that, was the yellow yeah, Bird? Kevin Powers was one. Um, David Abrams' Fobbit was That's one. Right. Yes. The Yellow Birds. There were a bunch. Um, and Billy Lynn, I thought, was you know the best of the bunch. Sharply written. Had a great voice. I loved that book. I really want to be invested in the next Ben Fountain novel. And mm. I can't get myself excited to read this. It sounds a little like homework. So I don't have much uh, faith that it's going to have it book stickiness in the discourse i would love to be surprised he's also a good interview so i could see Mm. like a you know ben fountain shows up on fresh air he'll he's gonna move some units um Mm. but also probably not gonna he's not gonna like be hanging out as you with with jenna bush hager or showing up on armchair expert or something like that something mainstreamy um maybe like ezra klein i could see Mm. um but that's pretty i mean we're still in pretty nerdy realms there so i think sophia sinclair she's holding on yeah i think that's right i i I think that's right if this were 366 pages (laughs) i I, i'm serious i'd be much more excited about Uh diving into it i'm going to need some good reviews i haven't seen a bunch of starred reviews good ones warm ones but they haven't been like you know this is the second coming of matterhorn by carl morlantes or one of those other things that you're really digging in and you're getting a lot out of yeah, it sounds like page turnery the blurb from publishers weekly it was like readers of international th- international thrillers should pounce which maybe from a sales point of view is a good you know that that's a good note but I think that actually is a demerit when it comes to our conversation here. International thriller, those are there's a lot of those. It's almost a commodity mm-hmm. space, um, which is hard to break out of. Um, I will eventually and, read this. I don't know how urgently will, but I will eventually read this. Yeah, 544 pages. This is one that like might show up for me at the end of the year when I'm doing my cleanup between Thanksgiving and New Year's of like the stuff that came out that I didn't get to mm-hmm. right as it was being published. I just don't know. That's a that's a big ask. Five hundred and forty five pages is a big hardcover. <laughs> it's a big hardcover. Well, the next book um, is not five hundred and forty four pages. It's six hundred and fifty six pages. So we're going the opposite <laughs> way here. But readers of contemporary fantasy are more forgiving of, mm-hmm. of word counts like this. And I don't know of many writers who have more sort of built up brownie points with their readership than V.E. Schwab. Her new book is called The Fragile Threads of Power, comes out September 26th from Tor. It is the first book in a new series called The Threads of Power, but it is set within her extant world from the Shades of Magic trilogy, which I really liked. Um, I'm putting it here because one must contend with contemporary fantasy we have some heavy hitters in this space now it is weird that i think schwab is a better has a better case for this it book designation than king and i don't know why that is i just feel like it's true invisible life of addy relu which is addy larue which was her last book was a mm-hmm. breakout instagram book talk barnes and noble front table kind of a hit that people really really liked i thought it was okay i liked it but at, anyway i was more uh, measured on it than others but 
She has a huge fan base. It's a series. Yet to have an adaptation breakout. I think some things yeah, have fallen really through, so I don't really know. Just, I think she's in a bit of a weird spot. I feel like, tell me if I'm wrong here. I feel like this being pl- set in an extant world is probably great fans for the Shades of Magic, but is it confusing to a new fan? Like, wait, what is this set in? I, I feel like that's kind of a weird spot to be in. I think that's a case of marketers trying to get things both ways. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, you know, she could still have written a new standalone story in an established world. And maybe there's just no way to, like, make everyone aware of both it's an established world and also it's a standalone story. Like, you just have to, if you're not already a V.E. Schwab fan, you would just have to decide, do you feel okay jumping into what is a standalone without the background of whatever this world is? I haven't read any of hers, but it, it does seem... I mean, it's that's me. I'm just not like a big yeah. sci-fi fantasy reader. Um, but it does seem that her fans are really excited and very dedicated. And I would trust that a writer who's operating on the scale that she mm-hmm. is is probably going into something like this, being mindful of like, I don't want to make a barrier to entry to this. So I'm guessing you probably don't need familiarity from the yeah. past books. But that might make it harder to sell it to folks. Um there's some book talk potential here. I feel yeah. honestly very torn about yeah, Sophia Sinclair. I think that's right. I think torn is the right versus V.E. Schwab because like Schwab would be the mainstream pick, but she might also be coming down off of you know what Bill Simmons would call Apex Mountain. <laughs> like we might have seen V.E. Schwab Apex Mountain it's already. It's gonna be hard to tap Invisible Life of Addie Ralu. It's a standalone. It's it's <laughs> spec fic, but it's let's high fantasy. This is, it's not high fantasy because not kings and castles and stuff. But this is you know multiple worlds, magic between them you know it's i feel like this is a smaller audience in invisible life of adi rulu because it's part of the mm-hmm. series because it is more fantastical you know i think that helps me articulate something which is like you can be you can have a huge genre hit without becoming an it book because there's a there are some different qualities of like what's a hit within a genre community and what can be a genre crossover that's right. that could go mainstream. That's right. And it's I think that's why we haven't heard like as much about like Rebecca Yeros as I mm-hmm. thought we were going to nope. in mainstream literary conversation. That book has sold like gangbusters. But if you're not into like high fantasy, you're not picking it up and talking about it. Um from that angle, I might live to regret this, but I think I'm going to pass Sophia Sinclair through for another round because there just is more possibility, I think, for mainstream hooks yeah. on a story like that um, than for something that is pretty well-defined into a genre. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said for this idea that the, in the world of the the real, I guess, the real, hard, it's not even hardcore genre, the more centrally genre readerships, the kindling, there's a lot of kindling there and it burns fast. Yes. But to to jump over the highway into regular readers is harder to do. And Invisible Life of Addie LaRue did that. It just did. Um, I think some of it is because it was a standalone and it was a little easier to get into. But it's also like it was in the vein of the Night Circus or, you know, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, those things that became more of a crossover hit. Those are hard to do. But going back into a world that already exists, it's part of a series that you know already, mm-hmm. it can happen. I think the it's just much harder to do. It can. It certainly can happen. We've, we've seen it happen before. Um, but I think Sarah J. Moss is the best example of, I think it burned out. Everyone who is a good candidate to read those books has probably read them. 
but like yeah. you and I haven't, and like our parents haven't, and our friends and no. family who aren't book people, we haven't picked up those books. And they've sold very well, and they're huge, huge hits. But when we're looking for it books, we're looking for something that could be a candidate for sort of every kind of reader that's open to sort of anything. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think this is going to get over that hump. Um, I agree. Know, edu- if, if the Sinclair has educated potential, that's we're kind of betting on potential right. rather than anything else. That's where like, we're yeah. looking at those Borna crimes and those educators. Like, that does happen more often than the Night Circus. It just happens when- more often. And to think about like a buy, sell, hold model yeah. here. I'm holding you know, Schwab. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. I'm buying Sophia Sinclair right. on, you know, faith, hope, potential for that stock to become really valuable. Schwab, I think it likely has already peaked in terms of like the cultural conversation stock, mm-hmm. not in terms of, you know, book sales numbers. She's almost definitely going to outsell Sophia Sinclair, probably by an order of magnitude. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I would be happy if I had bought the e. Schwab stock like six years ago, but I'm, I'm just going to hold at this point. Explode your to be read pile with the new release index, your new best friend for finding the best new books curated by the book nerds here at book riot. It will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. Okay. Um, next up. Hmm. This will be interesting. Sophomore novels can be difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, literary fiction, historical fiction. Uh, well, anyway, so the next book up is The Land of Milk and Honey. Excuse, no, The Land of Milk and Honey by C. Pam Zhang, whose last book... How Much of These Hills is Gold was wonderful, came out from Riverhead three mm-hmm. years ago. This book is about a chef. Um, it's some kind of spec fic because there's some kind of like smog or it says a smog. So that makes me think it's not just smog, right? This is a new kind of smog. Than yeah, we're used to. I think it's like a climate fiction moment. Yeah, a, a climate fiction book that centers on a chef um, and the chef goes out into the larger world and I don't know what to expect from this. <laughs> How much of these was historical fiction um, about two characters trying to make their way in the world of the gold rush as um, Chinese American cooks and porters. This is the, this is dipping the toes in or maybe jumping into um, a speculative fiction world. I think this could be really interesting, maybe in the line of like, you know, the power um, became mm-hmm. a huge hit and kind of like near future quasi dystopian. I'm not sure what to make of this. So I, I'm not sure if this, I would be buying lower or higher than if I'm buying this in Claire. Do you have a sense of this? Where am I buying this? If I'm buying, this? I am also book? having a difficult time yeah. with this one. And I'm really excited about this book. But climate fiction, like I guess to put it back in the it yeah. books framework, like climate fiction, kind of a tough sell. Like, yes. If that's your jam, more power to you. But it's a tough sell for a general reader to spend time reading something that's you know potentially only two hundred forty pages, depressing. which is good. It's not a giant doorstopper, <laughs> yeah. which these right. You don't be. you don't have to be depressed for like yeah. eighteen hours of reading. Yeah, right. Um, little bit of weirdness can be great if mm-hmm. it's too weird. It'll 
you know, close people out of reading it, or they'll start it and not finish it. You don't want to end up on the DNF shelf on Goodreads. Um, it sounds different enough from how much of these hills is gold that like folks who love that book are probably likely to pick up her second book. But I don't know if you're likely to like it as much because it it is quite a departure. This is where sophomore novels are so hard, as you were saying, like, unless yeah. you come back and play the hit again, from the first time, it's really hard to guess how a sophomore novel is going to go. I guess the most reasonable thing to do would be to assume that it's not going to perform as well as how much of these hills as gold is because that was a real outlier in terms yeah. of like overperformance for a debut novel debut literary fiction mm-hmm. historical literary fiction yeah. there's maybe some award nomination potential i think, I think so. she was on the finalist lists for the debut book um for several prizes i believe definitely made like end of the year best of lists I think the smart money is on if there's buzz about this, it happens later. And it's probably at that end of the year, best of reflecting on new releases time yeah. or award winners. But in terms of being the book of September, I'm going to, this is a tough field. Tough field. <laughs> I think, I think I'm going with Sophia Sinclair again. Yeah. This is a September book that maybe should have McBrided it into late August. Yeah. It could have maybe or had the like field to itself March. today. August 29th, yeah. the day we record. Um, or maybe even later, like early November. Uh, starred Reviews in Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, 240 pages. It's about food. The sentences are sound like, like the sentence level. It's really great. It's slight. I don't know. I think this is a comer. I think it's pretty close. Um, I'll let your decision to have How to Say Babylon <laughs> advance, but I think it's, it's pretty close. I'm excited okay. for this book. Yeah. Next up, we're going to do back-to-back sophomore novels. Did you read The Twelve Tribes of Hattie by Aina Mathis no, when it came out 10 I years ago? I missed um, that one. It was an Oprah's book pick. There was a really good piece about Mathis <laughs> getting the phone call, piece. if yeah. you remember that. It's very, <laughs> I do remember the piece. Um, a Powerful Book is the blurb I'm going to mention to you, which doesn't mean much in itself. Does it mean anything more to you if it's by one Marilyn Robinson ever heard of her? Pearl <laughs> sure does. Author of Gilead. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, multi-generational novel set in the 80s, which in my mind was like 10 years ago. That's now 40 years ago. <laughs> I know. We watched <laughs> National Lampoon's Vacation the other night from 1983. Yeah. And my brain was like, wow, cars look different 20 years ago. And I was like, no, this movie is 40 years old, as am I. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? The 12 Tribes of Havi is really, really good. And I think I said at the time, I'm really excited to see her next book. And this is it, mm-hmm. 10 years later. Set and remind me what it's called? It's called uh, The Unsettled. Unsettled. 336 pages, pages. Starred review already from Publishers Weekly. We've got blurbs from Marilyn Robinson, Oprah, Jasmine Ward. <sighs> I think it's hard for Sinclair to get past Mathis right here. I, I think it's very agree. hard. I agree. I agree. This has celebrity book club potential written all over yeah. it. It would not be the first time if Oprah decided to go back to the well. Go and back pick to the another, well. Pick, yep. And and Oprah is still making content on Can on, you on August twenty ninth about the covenant water. The Instagram feed is like, oh, this must be a couple of weeks ago because I was traveling. No, it was like yesterday. She's doing covenant That's, of water. Yeah, that's been their big summer pick. She's been talking about that book since oh May, which, does you she, know, does she have big book. Does in Grove? I don't understand. Anyway. I don't, it's amazing. Amazing. Um, but that means we are due for an Oprah fall pick. Yeah. And you could do a lot worse than bet on Ayanna Mathis for that. So, yeah, this is the moment Sophia Sinclair gets knocked out. It's going to be Ayanna Mathis. Yeah, it's going out from Knopf. 
336 pages, just where you love it. That's just, mmm. You'd love to see that. <laughs> September 26th, I agree. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. Um, going on. I'm sure you're looking forward to this next book. The first fictional turn from one of Rebecca's favorites, uh, Carl Ove Nosgaard uh, takes his <laughs> move from memoir. His first novel is called, this is the most like pretentious douchebag, The Wolves of Eternity. It's like an awesome title and terrible at the same time. Coming out from Penguin Press. Uh, oh, Jeff. Would you like to read you some of this blurb? Not particularly, but go yeah, ahead. You can't stop me now. In 1986, 20-year-old Severt Loying, I'm so sorry to all of Scandinavia for that pronunciation, returns from the military to his mother's home in southern Norway. One evening, his dead father comes to him in a dream. Reeling that doesn't really know who his father was, Severt begins to investigate his life and finds clues pointing to the Soviet Union. What he learns changes his past and undermines the entire notion of who he is. Fathers and identities and dreams um, coming out. Uh, well, okay, so hear me out. So, okay, and all honestly aside, this <laughs> Nosgard ha- is a name brand. A turn to fiction will have a little juice on it. And luckily, it's only 800 pages. <laughs> it's not two volumes yeah. to struggle through. Didn't want to break it into six. Um, I don't know what oh, to do boy. with this. <laughs> I really love the moxie of you putting this in the middle of the list. Yes. Like it's actually going to contend with anything that came before it. Um, I am probably too hard on Nausgaard. I'm sure he's a good writer. I cannot care. There's yeah. going to be like an excerpt of this on Lit Hub. There are going to be a corner of literary Twitter that I'll be really glad to not be on that will be talking about how amazing this book is. I'm sure it will be good. And like, I like fathers and sons and yeah. existential questions. I do. But I cannot get over like the halo of the just the Nausgardiness of it all. And uh, I don't know, the pretension that I associate with him and the moreover with the discourse about him there is just no way this is a mainstream conversation piece i, I was kidding of course about this being the <laughs> debut novel like all the my struggles were technically called novels and he's had some. oh i forgot about yeah, that right yeah all six of them and i think the the i don't remember what it was called the ones that were all named after um seasons there was that whole oh. quartet of books that came along it's funny, if you look on Edelweiss, there's the comps are, of course, all the Nosgards, which is... <laughs> of course. Okay. And then it's like Sea of Tranquility into Paradise. What? I don't no! Know. <laughs> I It'd be a shame if I would love this book. Because, like, you know, I like things. Um, yeah. I did pick up the first My Struggle at some point, and I couldn't... It, there was too much baggage, man. I couldn't handle yeah. it. I just, I just, I just couldn't. I just can't. It. Yeah. So, anyway. All right. Well, I think it's worth noting... But yeah. we're going to move on a little bit. Okay, now we're into it. We're into the last four. Gets Harry from here. This has all been preamble, unfortunately. Um, I'm so sorry, everyone that's come before, except to maybe Nosgaard, who's doing fine in Norway. Um, coming out September 12th from FSG, Naomi Klein's Doppelganger, A Trip mm. into the Mirror World, which is about her reckoning with the, the case that dummies like you and me cannot keep women named <laughs> Naomi straight. That's what this is about, right? 
the reality that That's people reality. can't keep women I mean, named just, Naomi yeah. straight. And this this happens to a lot of different people. Naomi is rare enough that it doesn't fall into like the Jonathan or Alice or Anne problem that we have in literary fiction, yeah, which we right. should do sometime. We should do um, a certain knockout round of Jonathans and Annes uh, <laughs> to, to see who remains. But Naomi Klein, who has written some really wonderful books like, you know, This Changes Everything, No Is Not Enough, On Fire, mm-hmm. um, a serious person that um, deals with climate and geopolitics. She happens to share the name with Naomi Wolf, the first name Naomi Wolf, and kind of at one point existed in the same sort of New Yorker, New York Review of Books, Bleeds Over the New York Times. And Naomi Wolf has taken what can only be described as a fairly hard turn into nuttiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is about identity. It's about preconceptions, it's about our modern world, um, and trying herself to wrestle with, it sounds like to me that we have sort of a doppelganger US, right? There's like my US, and then there's this other one that's out there. And to take a look at it honestly and provocatively and with curiosity, but also with high stakes. I'm very, very much looking forward to this, Rebecca. Me too. I think this is going to be a serious book for the fall. Um, 416 pages. There's already, the excerpts are coming. Uh, The interviews, she's going to be on all the upper crusty two olive martini spaces. Um, What do you think about Doppelganger and Naomi Klein's book? I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I'm like, I guess, not surprised that she's decided to write about it, but excited that she's decided yeah. to write about it. Because if you've like casually observed any of this that's gone on, and I'm sh- I, as a casual observer, I'm sure I've only seen a little bit of it of like mm-hmm. the whole picture of what has happened as people have confused her with this other person who is in the literary space, but has like as you said taken a, a pretty hard right turn into some real weird and dangerous you know lines of thought. Um, I don't know how mainstreamy it'll get like she's a really smart writer and challenging and this is like a it's called doppelganger it's a book about ideas i want these kinds of books to be Mm. out there i think she's going to give some interesting interviews i don't think it has i don't think she's going to compete with ayana mathis and the potential of like a reese pick or an oprah pick that that has but this is high on my list of books for the fall personally um yeah, so Ayanna Mathis passes through, but I'm super glad that this one made the wow, top Wow, I'm shocked. For you. I'm genuinely shocked that really? you passed it through. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She's got like 10 times the name wreck as Ayanna Mathis, Naomi Klein. But. I just think the marketing is going to do it for Ayanna Mathis. Okay. All right. Here you go. All right. We're down to our final three. Um, Algonquin, September 19th. The book of, in parentheses, More Delights by Ross Gay. Mm. I don't have to tell you, but I will tell other people that Ross Gay has written this sequence of books, The Book of Delights and Inciting Joy, and now The Book of More Delights. They're essays that are meditations, provocations, invocations, convocations about how to deal interestingly with grace and rigor um, in poetry into the world. If I'm making a list of my 20 favorite writers, I think Ross Gay's in there. Um, 100%. And I don't say that lightly. And if if I had to narrow the list further, it gets interesting. The Book of More Delights. We both read and loved Book of Delights and Inciting Joy. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I don't know what else to say about this book, Rebecca, at this point. Yeah. You know, I'm glad that this is where it is in the list. I don't think we're ending this episode with Ross Gay coming no. out as the number one it book of September, but this is a it's a spiritual selection for me. So, so <laughs> we are going to move Ayanna Mathis aside okay. uh, for for Ross Gay here. I also I'm seeing Ross Gay like on the come up. He's been on some big mainstream podcasts. I heard yes. him on Glennon Doyle's podcast, which has like millions, literal millions of people listening to it every week. This is the kind of thing. I think this is the kind of like come out of COVID book that mm-hmm. I want. You know, he's not necessarily writing about let us come out of COVID, but people are interested in how do I get back to the world? How do I access joy again? How do we find connection and meaning? And like, how are we going to make use of all of those sort of real enlightening moments that we had mm-hmm. in the hardest parts of the pandemic? I think this is that vibe. Roske is the vibe that people want, whether they know it or not, for here's how to like start thinking about your life in maybe a slightly different way. Just wonderful. Also in my top 20 favorite writers. If I could just subscribe to Ross Gay and like have the publisher send me his new book every time it came out, I would. Whatever he's going to write for the rest of his career. I'm in. Roske is one of my guys. So Ayanna Mathis can move over here. Roske, is, he gets to hang out for at least one round. <laughs> but I know what books are coming out in September. So I also have some ideas about what he might be up against in this next one. Yeah, Gay for me is as close to one of sort of these devotional kind of books. Yes. As, I'm, it's because he doesn't shy away from the, the darker pieces. He can't. He can't and doesn't. But also, I mean, listen to this. Also, well done, Edelweiss blurb writer for Algonquin. As always, Gay revels in the natural world. Sweet potatoes being harvested, a hummingbird Mm. carousing in the bee balm, a sunflower growing out of a wall, the shared bounty from a neighbor's fig tree, and a trillion mysteries, the trillion mysterious ways this glorious earth delights us. I mean, that's just... Yeah. And, you know, it is... He's a serious human who is taking life seriously, but not taking himself so seriously and i think that's really critical for a book mm. like this he's funny he has a sense of humor about himself and about life there will be some challenging stuff there will be some dark stuff like it turns out from inciting joy that the way to incite joy is to welcome your sorrows and he like meditates on what that means for 20 pages we need that kind of stuff and we need it to come from someone who understands that like it can't come in the literary version of like sticking your dog's pill in a piece of cheese and hoping they don't notice that something bitter is in the middle of it. It just has to be appetizing. And he knows how to do that. It doesn't feel like Roske is trying to like pull one over on you to get you to read something that's good for you. These books are good and they're good for you and they're Mm. enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. um, Here's a blurb that's notable and but you got to wait till the end. To hear why. Okay. Uh, Roske is back and better than ever. This time he swings his basket higher, slower, for a whole new bevy of brainy and witty, notice, witty notices. And this is appearing in Garden and Gun magazine, that blurb, <laughs> which means to me that there's a, the, the circle's getting bigger. Right? Mm-hmm. The circle of Ross um, expandeth. So, Love it. Anyway, there we go. Love Ross that Gay. for him and for us. Well, Ross, I hope you had a good time because <laughs> coming up next, next week, really kicking off the fall season to glorious and wonderful aplomb is The Fraud by Zadie Mm -hmm. Smith coming out from Penguin Press, a dive into historical fiction for her, a kaleidoscopic work, 
against a legal trial that divided Victorian England about who gets to tell their story and who gets to be believed. I'm reading from the blurb here. I have started this. I'm well mm. into it. I'm very much okay. enjoying it. It is 464 pages. I was in, this is a topic for maybe the Book Riot podcast this week. I did some peeking in of, of um, British and uh, British Isles bookstores mm-hmm, mm-hmm. over my break. And in, I think this was a Foils bookshop, there was a take with you free poster for the fraud that had on the back of it sort of a reading pathways of Zadie Smith. If you haven't love that idea and you get to sort of see. So it's coming over there. The buzz on this is very good. Zadie Smith has ascended to be one of the matriarchs of Anglophone fiction. And we've been waiting a while for a big book. We loved intimations. You and I did the last mm-hmm. novel though. Wasn't, was it swing time? Was that twenty? I think it was. Yeah, so we're looking on seven years. There's been a book of essays and I think a book of short stories, but the novel is the coin of the realm for it booking. The Fraud by Zadie Smith, Rebecca Shinsky. <laughs> Listen, I, I think Ross you. Gay is delighted to be knocked off of this That's list right. by Zadie Smith. If he needs one more to put in his book of delights, he can have that. Yeah. Obviously. Come on. <laughs> and then we can get to the main I'm, event. Yeah, let's guess, do it. With that. Um, you know what's coming here. Anyone that's paying attention at all knows as well that The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff gives Zadie seven days on their own, but then on September 12th comes from Riverhead, 272 pages, wonderful buzz. Rebecca, you and I are coming off the Groff. Groff, Groff hasn't missed yet. Let me just put it out Mm-mm. there. Um, between Fates and Furies, uh, and Florida, uh, yeah, Florida, Matrix, a taut and electrifying novel. A servant girl escapes from colonial settlement in the wilderness. She carries nothing with her but her wits, a few possessions, and the spark of God that burns hot within her. What she finds in this terra incognita is beyond the limits of her imagination, will bend her belief of everything that her own civilization has taught her. I don't know what that means. I'm so excited <laughs> I can barely breathe. It's The Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff Riverhead, our final contender for the It Book of August. Rebecca, do what I cannot do and decide between the fraud and the Vaster Wilds. This is not as difficult for me as I feel like it's supposed okay, to be. So it's this be is the Lauren Groff. Wilds. Yeah, yeah okay. this is Lauren Groff for me all the way. Yeah. I'm super excited to read The Fraud. I love Zadie Smith, but like a 560 page historical novel. 460, is a thing. let's be careful out there. Okay, I mean, sorry, 460. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but that's not a thing I'm picking up unless it's written by <laughs> Zadie Smith. Zadie the Smith. only reason that I'm reading a book with this synopsis is that it has Zadie Smith's name attached to it. And I don't think that I'm alone in that camp. Um, It's a big book. It's kind of an obscure topic. I think some of the marketing around this, at least in the US, I don't know how they've marketed it over in the UK, has been a little bit like mixed messagey, a little bit confusing, Mm. because some of it refers to like the real people that the book is based on. And that always makes me be like, well, I know nothing about those people. Am I going to get this novel? And some of it just goes for the ideas like kind of in the synopsis that you were just giving. So I just I think it's a little bit of a harder sell. Also, it's been a long time since she had a novel. Lauren Groff is still hot from Matrix. That book was 
a little weird and I was surprised mm. that the weirdness of that book was something that so many people could go with and be stoked about and I had to like sort of I think recalibrate what readers were willing to do where yeah. they were willing to go with Lauren Groff and it sounds like Vaster Wilds is going to have a little bit of that weirdness a little bit of surrealness but now we know that people will go there with her and we know that she can do it really well and the early reviews on this book are just bananas 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 where the like the conversation around the smith has been a little bit more back and forth in what i've seen i've seen some raves and i've seen some like you're gonna have to kind of work for this one but if you like zadie smith you'll probably like it um so i'm just i'm lauren groff man yeah it's i i think i agree with you in the uk um i did see a little marketing for it in the you know shelf talkers and stuff again pre-pub handouts for books you'd never see so that's yeah one thing. genius and i don't know if that's a uk thing that but but i think zadie smith is a national treasure and, and rightly deserved and it was mm-hmm. being pitched there as a as the great modern london book even though it's set oh. in, the, in history so that's a that's a thing that's happening over there interesting right? so, okay you know, like Shabon Adventures of a Cavalier and Clay was a great book about comics, historical books, a great New York book. And so if you can market it that way, there's a lot of book buyers in London and mm-hmm. in the UK. And you know, the centrality of, the, of London to, to the English and UK identity is different than, it resonates on a different level for us. So yeah. I think that's something that may be hard. Now, we don't talk about the it books being sort of Anglophone versus the US. We tend to talk about US, but maybe yeah. it's different if we're including the, including the greater English-speaking Commonwealth. I think, I don't know what Groff's Q rating is in New New Zealand. I think Zadie's <laughs> is bigger there. Right, probably, um, yeah. But we're talking about us and we're talking about the kinds of circles in which we trod. And I think I agree with you. I think so far the reviews and buzz for the Groff have been crystalline. And I think mm-hmm. for the fraud, they've been a little cloudier. Doesn't mean it's going to end up that way. Sometimes some mixed reviews can be, for me especially, a sign of interest and intrigue that there's something weirder going on. Also, the Vasher Wilds is a great. It's, it's a great, great title. title. It's unbelievable title 272 pages i cannot wait to get my hands on this i'm not doing a review copy i'm buying this i'm buying both of these (laughs) i did the fraud because i wanted to read it while i was traveling to and from in london um i didn't do as much reading over there as i did but i'm into it um i'm not sure how the the plane is going to land which is again how a lot of these things happen the ending matter for something becoming a book well Um, we are going to devote like a whole bonus episode to the fraud yes. to a book club episode of the book of the book riot podcast um, over on our Patreon. So folks who are curious about that can find us there Yep. Uh, in mid September. I got to go to Italy and come back from Italy and what then a, read what the a fraud. trial for you to go to Italy and come back. I'm so sorry <laughs> that that's something that I'm not going to endeavor to read this book on vacation. That's no. not going to happen. <laughs> so the Vaster Wilds by Lauren Groff um, waited till the end and survived um, I kind of thought that's how this would go. What a yeah. wonderful month. I will not, I mean, I always, I can't, I guess I'm not going to read the Nusgard. Um <laughs> You don't think so? I probably, I won't read the King. Am I going to read the Schwab? O'Neill's Razor, O'Neill's Razor will not allow me to start the Schwab. For those of you who don't know, I do not start um, series that haven't been finished yet. Um, I got burned several times. Um, the Rothfuss being the, the wound that will not heal because that book came out 10 years ago. And I didn't know when I picked it up that in the name of the wind was a series, let alone that it wasn't finished. And I did not care. I do not care for this experience. So I will wait until it's done. 
But I think everything yeah. else I will get to eventually. I'm going to get to the insert. Yeah. I'm going to get to Land of Milk and Honey. I'm going to be doing How to Say Babylon the first week it comes out on the audio. My Audible credit will be firing off towards that um, with Extreme Prejudice. So a really wonderful month. I'm curious to hear what other people think. First edition at bookriot.com. Uh, there's links in the show notes to Twitter and Instagram and the newsletter especially. Check that out there. Rebecca, we will know soon. We're going to know in two weeks. Wait, so what's your Groff reading strategy? You're gone for this. Are you picking this out? How are you? Oh, well, I'm I'm gone for the fraud. I'll be back for Groff. Oh, you'll be back for the Groff. Yeah, so I'm going to read the fraud when I'm back, and then we'll talk about it. And then yeah. I've scheduled us a mid-October threefer um, mm. in the Patreon of Lauren Groff, Jasmine Ward, and Michael Lewis all to be discussed on Monday. Because October doesn't get a lot easier, <laughs> let me tell you. It does not. It does yeah. not. Jesmyn Ward and Michael Lewis come out on the same day in October. Like, at least Zadie and Lauren have a week between them. That's almost harder because they're like two of our faves from different from different streams. It's like two rivers clashing at the fjord. Right. I don't know yeah. how this is going to go down. As I was saying that, I was thinking maybe it's only a dilemma for you and me that Jesmyn Ward and Michael Lewis come out on the same day, but it's a dilemma for a lot of folks that Zadie Smith and Lauren Groff are coming out so All together. right-thinking people are equally concerned about the Ward and Lewis coming on the same day. Well, I hope so. They don't have the same problem of a um, synthesized and completely arbitrary structure for deciding these things because <laughs> no, no decision need be made. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show, everyone out there. Happy fall. It's it's the harvest season for those of us who like to read books. So enjoy it and reap while you can. We'll talk to you all later. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Up next, my conversation with Professor Jenny Nuttall of Oxford, talking about her new book, Mother Tongue, Surprising History of Women's Words, where she looks at language, descriptions of women's bodies, their labor, their relationship. I really found it fascinating. So I get into that with her. So stick around here and uh, here we go. I guess the first thing I want to ask you about is the the time bound. So you you begin with basically as old as English as you can find and decide to bound it around 1800 or so. Um, could you tell me why that boundary, explain why that boundary is a useful, It's it's a big one, but there's a reason that you're choosing that chunk of time. Yeah, and I suppose it made sense to me as someone who teaches the history of English and teaches Old English and Medieval English. So I'm kind of, I'm looking that way up the mm. pipeline. You know, eight, 1800 to me is like a long way <laughs> off. Um, yeah, and I like the idea of going right back to the beginning. But looking at it the other way, I felt that quite a lot of our uh, contemporary vocabulary for the sorts of topics I'm interested in, so women's lives and their experiences and words to describe them and their life cycles and their bodies and things that happen to their bodies, quite a lot of them from the perspective of a medievalist are quite recent, the kind of Mm. 18th, 19th, early 20th century. And it was, as I was sort of thinking about this language and answering questions about this language at work and when I was at home, I was often thinking as only a an Oxford medievalist could think that's quite a recent word. Oh, that's only 1820 <laughs> or that's only 19, you know, ridiculous. But I, I remember thinking, okay, I wonder if there's anything before. So I like the idea of hopping right back. And it also seemed to me that some of that, I mean, this is very, you know, raw brush stuff, but some of the kind of changes that go on in those centuries, the rise of ideas of kind of decorum and a mm. bit more taboo and euphemism and appropriate public speech, and the, the the kind of taking over of some of these 
fields increasingly more and more by by kind of masculine authority kind of science and knowledge and medicine sort of fits that vocabulary for us yeah yeah and when i looked at it i thought well maybe do we want that i mean do we, do we want all of its associations so the book does try to kind of big circle you know from the beginning up to the present day but i i quite often found when i don't know whether you found this when i was picking up books to do research or topics I'm interested in you'll see a book that's that's advertised as a history of you know and it it starts in 1800 or there's one chapter on on or you get a chapter on the classics then you sort of hop a bit and and then it really picks up speed when there's so so I was like I don't think we need more about particularly 19th and 20th century stuff and maybe it would be great to kind of hop back so that that's it's kind of moving through time back to the beginning and then thinking at the end of the story about what happens mm. towards towards the end to give us our contem- contemporary vocabulary but yeah i try to to i always thought of myself as kind of skimming across if i could lightly step like stepping stones and kind of take the reader <laughs> with me it, it would be okay yeah and one of the things that happens in that in the the century century and a half before 1800 that you outline is the emergence and the dominance of medical thinking, medical writing in describing the human body and especially women's bodies. Physicians were a little less squeamish to talk about women's bodies and write about them. And on the other hand, language became, I don't know, it became the de facto. We still use the language for women's anatomies developed in like 1680 or you know around then and, and later. And that's kind of a weird dynamic, right? Is that at the one hand, they aren't afraid to write about women's anatomy. On the other hand, we kind of haven't moved on past that in a strange way. Yeah, I think that's a really good summary of some of the processes I'm describing at the, at the beginning of the book that, you know, in, in some ways this is great. You know, people are interested in, in what's called the fabric, the fabric of the human body. And you start to get that process where some new words and some older words that have been sort of floaty around a bit like pin the tail on the donkey i'm not quite sure what part that is but this ancient also yes. mentions it and i'm sure it's there somewhere that started you know we're actually you know the, I, I i was i was surprised how much i enjoyed reading in in mm. contemporary sort of 16th 17th 18th century english translations the work of renaissance anatomists who are really keen to describe the fabric of the human body in detail and particularly for for someone who's not there looking over their shoulder in the anatomy theater who's kind of reading it at second hand and, and some of them are increasingly pure and it's a little controversial and some experts won't talk in particular about female anatomy but many of them will they they start to give us these descriptions and there are yeah there is for a while there's a there's a little kind of cluster of synonyms you often yeah. get a kind of latinate derived words and and for the purposes of explanation you get um you know we could call it vagina but we could call it a porch or a passage or a wicket or all of these things but then yeah as as, as things i think become a little more kind of formalized um and i think probably as as that slow slow process of, of kind of ideas of decorum and euphemism it might be better to be rather kind of elevated about these things those those synonyms dr- drop away in english mm-hmm. um and yeah and we are left with a set of terms for, particularly for um you know female sexual characteristics for example which are you know tricky if you don't know the etymology kind of easy to confuse lots of the surveys seem to right. say that you know there's even even you know i'm i'm getting on now and yeah, i had quite good sex education 
education school you know this has been going on for some generations now but people don't still feel very happy with those words you know i think it can be hard to own a term so then people have kind of slang and and nicknames but i you know what what can the history of english give us well it can give us a sort of a set of kind of what ifs and here's some kind of other routes we might have gone down and i'm really not saying we should go back to these you know, I'm I'm a kind of fusty academic with this. I don't think we should go back to the kind of <laughs> the Middle Ages. But but there was something about the the kind of either it's metaphorical or it's kind of creative. Some of this this language of kind of describing the fabric of the body for people to understand it. It's it's a shame we we lost that along the way. I think you cite some stats at the end of the book about how bad. Americans and Brits are, at least, I think those are the two demographics you yeah. looked at, at being able to anatify, identify specific parts of the female anatomy. And some of it is because the language is pretty cold. It is, it's very clinical. And yeah. the difference between a cervix and a vulva is important and different, but the words themselves feel very abstract from actual lived yes. experience. And, and then you add in this sense that it's somehow taboo or that, you know, that yes. these are words that we should be careful with and the, you know, it's yeah. it's not very user-friendly. So I, I quite like the kind of gung-ho attitude of a kind of someone who's read a lot of kind of this new Latin anatomy and wants to kind of get it in English. And some of this writing is for physicians and mm. kind of interested elite men, but there's this really interesting work from the middle of the 16th century by Thomas Raynal called The Woman's Book. And he puts a lot of this new anatomical writing into into a book for pregnant women and midwives to kind of tell them about their own bodies so so yeah you're right it's it's not always being hidden away there are moments where for whatever reason that the, I mean, there is there is real nervousness and people are like mm-hmm. should you publish that chapter and you know in various books but but there is a kind of willingness to kind of map out the body which is is a, was a surprise, you know. I was coming to a lot of. I was was such fun with this book to to pick a semantic field and and then <laughs> go see, you know, go see what was littering the landscape. And often I would think, oh, surely there's nothing back beyond, yeah. That term. And then I would find some some. So it's not really lost language. It's just things that got way late. Yeah, kind of kind of abandoned evolutionary trees linguistically. Things that kind of yeah. got pruned off or road not taken or. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. some other term was the fittest for whatever reason. Vagina is one that you cite, like kind of one person came up with this word and wrote it in a textbook and it took off like wildfire. And we can, you can, you you point very specifically that. And then there's other terms about women's lives, like just the very simple girl that kind of goes back into the fog of whatever. And it's, we don't really know it's been around forever. And both of those two things are true at the same time that some mm. of these words we can we can identify very clearly, and some of them feel like they came from the mists of time. It's an interesting way to think about it, um, and and he is t- to defend himself. He's trying to be helpful. He's trying to describe. So, yeah, absolutely. And into, yeah. You know, it comes the idea of that. You know, the the scabbard of the the sword, and we we have, might have certain thoughts about why that metaphor and why it catches on. But there, there's someone trying to kind of, you know, if you're very unlikely to be doing the job of dissecting a, a, a female body. This is a kind of rare and new thing. This is what you might realise about it. But yeah, I mean, I I suppose I found also that even in things we think are relatively stable and familiar, like girl, there are there are kind of things you can trace. I suppose this is mm. the, the kind of, you know, there have been other books a bit like mine that take words and kind of do these kind of micro histories and try and work out what's going on that there are always 
surprises so that the girl isn't quite as far back as old English. It doesn't turn up till the middle of the Middle Ages. And when it does arrive in English, it means male and female right. children for a good couple of centuries. So you think, oh, that's kind of interesting. So maybe, you know, that makes you think about, well, how did they refer to girls? And you can think about, um, there are paraphrases, but it's also because there are status words like kind of daughter and maiden and girl is this interesting word. And when it when it starts to be used in opposition to boy, so girl versus boy at, at the beginning of the 16th century, it, it even though it seems so kind of familiar to us, mm -hmm. it's a word that, that's being used. Um, it's been some brilliant research on this, um, at least for, for a century or so, quite I mean, sometimes fairly plainly, but but sometimes to kind of point out when a, a female child or a young woman is is not being not behaving in ways that sit neatly in one of these other categories, daughter or, or maiden. So so you get things like the the roaring girls, these kind of famous misbehaviors. You know, girl and boy are the are the kind of teenager or or kind of youth or thug words of their moment. So even in the in the kind of evolution of words, you know, words words were exciting once and kind of new and, <laughs> and they can kind of um show us things and it's funny that we then much much later on want to kind of give a word like girl all that kind of um wonderful kind of empowering stuff of kind of rebel girl and girl power and i think well the funny thing was that was kind of where it, one of its earlier yeah. earlier uses it became something to improvise on a little bit like you could attach yeah. different adjectives or you know whatever to describe different kinds of womanhood or femaleness that yeah. doesn't quite fit in necessarily like that, that i hadn't heard roaring girl before and i hadn't heard is it virago could you talk about i thought that was a really interesting term looking at these branches that kind of get pruned off yeah and i think that's a really good often often language is a a, a kind of map of our a record of our failures yeah. you know but but <laughs> right. the, but it also kind of i'm quoting some of that but it also kind of lets slip things and I was very interested in finding those words that let slip even whether they want to or not so Virago which wonderfully is the name of my UK publisher this feminist press oh, that's having its that's 50th amazing. anniversary so it was great to come out with them this year but yeah it, it can, has as many of these words do it, ha it has several different lives at different moments but the one um readers or might listeners might know is that it describes a sometimes like a warrior woman um or Sometimes it's quite simply defined as a kind of woman doing a man's job, which is your point that it kind of oh ah actually some of the time not not every single time it's, we sort of promote for various reasons you know husband away we all sorts of ways women do these things that they're kind of we we think they're not supposed mm -hmm. to but they do so we need a word for them um, it does eventually um, perjurate and becomes a way of kind of telling off a kind of bossy yeah. stroppy woman you virago. It, it comes, the it's, it's got to say, I'm going to get a bit nerdy, but it, That's it great. it's first use. And I, I didn't know this. And this is the kind of, where does that word come from? Well, um, there's that point in the, the book of Genesis before Eve gets her name. She gets named as a, a woman. And there's a relationship between Veer and Virago. Um, and the, the, the translator, the person who's got to find the word for that in Latin to kind of correspond to what's going on in the in the sources he's translating to give us that advice needs a needs a word that shows the connection. So, and it's a sort of diminutive. So it might you could think of it as something like manette, 
she's not super feminist but right um but you <laughs> yeah. know i like you can kind of flip it but what can we do that well you could say you know we're kind of you know if we're all we're all viragos in a way because mm. it's a word that's that's there in the very in that man you know the that kind of origin story you what she called well, before you know we think of woman but but the word in the latin is is virago before mulier or something like that so so again i like that wanted to find a lot of words like that for the book where um it shows you that words are never fixed and you have to mm -hmm. kind of follow stories but but even sort of um words that are sometimes quite well known as as kind of certainly in the uk context virago the, the feminist press it was quite fun to kind of tell virago oh did you know this kind of one there's one <laughs> stage back before or several stages before it gets reclaimed as a as a as a kind of great word for um a, a woman stepping into what's conventionally thought of as a man's word but no we, you know we can i like going backwards i sort of it's it's and didn't ever want to kind of stop. Um, I mean, yeah. I had to be sort of stopped from going back beyond English even further. But um, <laughs> yeah, you can. There's a few times you like you kind of wander into, and that comes from the French. And you you spend spend a little bit in French, and then come back a little bit. You can see the temptation to continue on yeah. and expand out. You know, and one thing that that struck me reading the book, and I think you you really highlight it well, is you discover or or you you trace a lot of richness right around certain words or certain ideas, and what's like girls and maidens and you know sort of young women there's a lot of words and then for older women there's a lot of words you know the crone the spinster maybe witch you know depending on how things go and in looking at that richness you kind of like kind of like how astronomers find a black hole by an absence you see you you, you identify there's an absence of terms for women adult I, even even me trying to describe what there's an absence for is indication of our absence of the problem of women between the ages of 24 and elderliness and that's it and it's it's woman and that's all we've I got i like that you didn't go for a number yet a number yes, there, yeah right, right. Like i'm very careful I've, I've learned something in my in my years <laughs> yeah and i suppose that's there's there's the book is very much a sort of history of sets of words in english but i also thought there was something to be said for kind of seeing uh, not all the time but but quite often thinking okay what what do we have now and what's missing and yeah i mean and again not the not it's not a s serious suggestion that we kind of reclaim these words but you do have a word like matron which sounds right. so terrible i, I would certainly in british english like a kind of frumpy woman who might be running a hospital or you yeah matronly is an insult yeah. right matronly yeah. is kind of an insult i would say but like like lots of these words even like something like look bell bell dam say that that word that becomes a kind of renaissance word for a kind of witch a crone they yeah. start off as fairly respectful words so matron is a kind of honorific that you again it's a word that lets slip that there are plenty of women exercising authority you know sometimes through their marriage and their household but also through through professions and trades or you know the, the reason you have a matron is in a hospital is because you need a senior woman who would be mm -hmm. called a matron to, to to take on that responsibility so i don't you know I, I, we you probably can't redeem matron from matronly but it's interesting to see oh, it is really very strange in our enlightened times yes yeah. for, for example me at the moment you know i have my work status and my wife mother but if i if i want to say kind of where i am in at this stage in 
life, you know, not not a young thing, not elderly. Where are the words? Right. Yeah. And it's a it's most of a woman's life, you know, in terms of years, it is yeah. described by this this absence. And mm. it's, it feels a little bit like what you have is the stuff of language about women's lives without many great narratives written by women about their own lives. We don't have a Samuel Pepys, for example, yeah. Uh, yeah. a kind of example. So what what are, what are the strengths and weaknesses of what of pulling out these little drawers and finding these little bits and bobs? What's exciting about that and what's frustrating about that? Yeah, and it was, you know, we talked a lot about the the subtitle and women's words. And I, right. there is a sort of room for maneuver there. And, and sometimes, just very rarely, yes, you can actually go to the horse's mouth and get women's words. And I put as many of those mm-hmm. in as I could. But, but I did think that some of, you know, some of those had been anthologized and quite familiar. So I was like, how do, how do I kind of, you know, find find some new material that I want to work with here, and it was this process of uh, uh, my. I suppose what are my little doors and drawers? They're looking in early dictionaries, glossaries, um, and then and then when you find a word, searching through a corpus to find other uses of that word and kind of happen on something. Um, apps. The, the downside, of course, very often written by men. So you're already kind of um, and bearing the traces of kind of masculine authority and what stands for kind of expertise and the kind of the logic that subordinates mm-hmm. women in these centuries. But particularly in by glossaries, by early multilingual dictionaries and early English dictionaries, they're, they're really keen to give you lots of synonyms. And I felt there was a kind of... A great bunch of words there often when someone is trying to give you an English equivalent for a word in Latin or French or another foreign language and, and we absolutely can't be certain but you sort of think oh that might just be a word that was in people's houses and in their mouths yeah. and in their kind of conversations right. because this is the work that, that kind of dictionaries and glossaries do they kind of they're on the way to kind of explaining things kind of making difficult words simpler so so even yeah, it's quite sort of patchworky and fragmentary, and it was it was quite fun, fun and difficult to write because you were always doing a kind of crafting job of trying to find links between language. I, I worried, you know, you, you you also had to give people enough of enough of the kind of context right. to hang on, yes. hang on to things. But yeah, I, I, that's a sort of. Um, the description of kind of patchwork in the introduction and that description, which is about looking for words to do with the working women, which are sort of not there in some places, but they're in other sorts of records. They're, they're sort of pretty faithful metaphors for how I thought this book might work. And 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 a kind of acknowledgement, I think, trying to be kind of, to recognize that what I am doing is kind of holding up interesting things from the past out of an attic and say, look, <laughs> look at this. But I mean, yeah. I like attics. I like junk shops. I yeah. like, I, I can't walk past an antique shop, but you know, that that's, that's the sort of way I like thinking about things, whether it's objects or whether it's words. I want to get you out on this. Um, are you picking flux or lunination for, for, for period or, or is there something else that I missed? Well, yeah. I, and some some reviews have taken me real. I meant that always with a, a dose of whimsy, you know. But, you yeah, know, yeah, to tongue in cheek, which, uh, of course. Which yes. would be, I mean, lunations. There's there's a kind of elegant euphemism. It's 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 really <laughs> rare. There's you know not very many instances from the nineteenth century. P- 
periods are not really connected to the moon, I gather. But, you know, there's there's metaphor fluxes, um, even though it sounds rather kind of sci-fi and whizzy now, which I quite like about it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's it, it's describing mean, one of the, the period language I was particularly struck that we, we've really given up on any of the language that talks about it yes. as a kind of liquid flowing, physical, practical ex- experience. There's even a word like flux that you can think of the bloody flux that gets um Henry the fifth you know that that it, it's a medical description but but periods are being connected with other sorts of bodily processes even in the, even in the middle ages and the renaissance and described as kind of runnings or issues so I, i'd go for flux but everyone else my you know my daughter the girls in the virago office seem to like lunations mother tongue the surprising history of women's words It was great. Really recommend it for book lovers and language lovers out there. Best of luck with the book and so much for taking the time. Thank you. And that's the show. Thanks as always to Rebecca for joining me. Thanks to Professor Jenny Nuttall. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to keep up with the show, link in the show notes to the email newsletter. It's on Substack, Instagram, Twitter. I'm going to try to do more stuff there. I'm not very good at this. I'm still trying to learn. But we're getting into the fall season, so I've got a lot to talk about. If you want to help the show, the best way to do that is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Do a rating. You don't have to write a review. Just do the rating. It really helps people find the show when they come to the show page. They say, yeah, the people actually like this. When I'm trying to get guests, that can be very helpful. Got a lot of good stuff coming up this fall. Thank you so much. You can go to the show notes and find the links to Professor Nuttall's book and all the hit book knockout round candidates. Again, I'm sorry for getting How to Say Babylon in the Wrong Monk month. That's too bad. But give us another opportunity to talk about in October. And until next time, we're going to talk.